Be the right club today. Yes! Again, has to be careful of the speed. What a comeback season for Hal Sutton. Come right back toward the hole. Seventeen years later, Hal Sutton is the Players' Champion. and welcome to another Be The Right Club Today podcast. Hal, it's Players' Championship Week. You've had some success there, right? Um, this is always a fun week for golf, for Hal Sutton, for anybody, really. Uh, it's strongest field in golf over the stadium course, which we're all real familiar with through the course of time. So I think it's a fun week for everybody to watch. Do you consider it, is it kind of the a fifth major almost? Well, of course, I think it's a major. Because you, you won it twice? Yeah. Because <laughs> I won it twice. But uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, historically, everybody says it's the strongest field in golf. And I can tell you there's some pretty intimidating shots on uh, this golf course. And, you know, the 17th hole, the famous 17th hole. Sure. Uh, if you go over there and just play around the golf, it'll intimidate the average player just because it's an island green. But I can, you can put you know, almost $2 million on the line for even the best players in the world. And all of a sudden, that's a fairly intimidating shot. Absolutely. And then I think, you know, 16 is a, a perfect risk-reward par 5. And then, I, I mean, 18, to me, 18's the, the it, it's not the it's not as famous as 17, but that's the scarier hole, for, you know, if I was having to play under the gun, for sure. Well, for sure, because you got to hit a great drive there. Yeah. Uh, or bail out yeah. and bail out is no piece of cake right. there's no guarantee you're gonna make a par if right. you do that and then i remember you we saw adam scott and we saw there's a couple of guys that coming down the stretch had a had a couple of shot lead and yanked one in the water there and stuff i mean that second shot if you hit it if you miss it right of the green that's a really tough up and down and i mean it's a just a typical pete die tough tough finishing hole i mean he's he's pretty pete die was one of the best at point a to point b to point c that's yeah. the way he designed his golf courses right. Right. Awesome. Well, this is an exciting episode for us because we got to uh, bring our first guest on, a good friend of yours. It is. Peter Jacobson will be with us here, and uh, it was always fun. Peter and I have been great friends for a long time, and, you know, he's uh, he's got plenty of ideas on things. So sure. get ready for a fun time. So enjoy our, uh, our first guest, Peter Jacobson, first of many. We'll have a lot more of these, and, yeah, uh, yeah hope you guys uh, hope you guys enjoy. All right, so I'd love to introduce uh, a man that really doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Seven-time PGA Tour winner, two-time Champions Tour winner. He's been in multiple Ryder Cups. He was the star of, uh, of the movie Tin Cup, Payne Stewart Award winner. Uh, and honestly, that you know, I think the, the best little addition to the resume is you are the first guest that we're having on the Be The Right Club Today podcast. How does that, uh, Peter, how does that make you feel? That makes me feel great. Uh, not as good as being the star of Ten Cup as you saw. <laughs> well, well how, 
Colin and I have been been talking about guests for a while and who we were going to have, and he was insistent that you were uh, you were going to be our first one. So, uh, so yes, Mr. Peter Jacobson, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. And uh, yeah, how what's what's the latest? What you been up to? How's how's your golf game? What's been going on? Well, I'm honored to be your first guest. Thank you so much. I uh, just got back from the Arnold Palmer Invitational. I did TV last week for Golf Channel and NBC up at Bay Hill, and it was an amazing week. I'm not sure if, if you watched it, but when you're doing TV, as you guys know, you dive into all the stories. It's pretty obvious when you're watching the, win the guy who wins or the guys that are in contention, but there's, there's so many stories buried. Uh, as we know, as tour players, there's so many stories buried in the competition that it's fun to dive into. You look last week, Bryson DeChambeau was trying to drive that six green, that par five, which he didn't quite do, but still hit a bunch of great drives there. Jordan Spieth trying to come back. Lee Westwood trying to win as a 48 year old and overall trying to keep Arnold's legacy going with that, with the, with the Arnold Palmer Invitational. So uh, yeah, I just got back. I uh, got my first vaccine on Monday, a couple of days ago. Uh, I'd already had COVID, but I want to obviously get vaccinated. So one shot down, one to go. And other than that, I'm just, uh, I'm doing great. Hey, Peter, it's great to have you on. You don't know how excited I was to have you on. Uh, we've been friends for a long time and we've seen a lot through the years in golf. And uh, I want to take you back a long ways here. Uh, the all exempt tour came along in 1983. Gary McCord brought it to everybody's attention in 1982. Tell me what you think, how that affected the tour long-term. I think it, there were some good aspects and there were some frustrating aspects, Hal. I think it was good because players, well, the top 60, there were only 60 players that were exempt and could make their schedules. Everybody else had to go through Monday qualifying and, for a player like myself or, or anybody else, you had to Monday qualify. And if you got in you may, and made the cut, you were in the next week. So the result of that was we would end up playing eight, nine, 10, 11 tournaments in a row. Because if you got on a hot streak and you started playing well and making cuts, you didn't want to take a week off because then you'd, you'd have to go back to Monday qualifying. So. I think in that respect, it helped players make their schedule when they went to the top 125. But the bad aspect of it, I think, is there were a lot of players that got very complacent. Some players realized, well, I don't really have to work that hard to win. I don't have to work that hard to stay in the upper echelon of the tour. I can float along here. I can make X amount of money, stay in the top 125 and make a great make a great living and how I know you as well as anybody out there you're all about winning and about 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 achieving great success which you did and and that's really the most important thing about the PGA Tour is you need to win you can't just bump uh, bump along with 20 place finishes or back in the pack you need to you need to really focus on winning so the top 25, in my mind, was good in one, a couple aspects, and maybe not so good in a couple others. So wouldn't you say that that's kind of true of everything in life? There's nothing that's a perfect solution to everything, and 
you know, while we gained something because we, we were able to, uh, you know, secure a schedule at the beginning of the year, if you will, uh, we lost something and that some people lost the desire to, to really be a great player. Uh, that's one thing I really admire about Tiger Woods. You know, he never lost sight of what he was trying to do. And uh, that's really hard to do. People don't really understand. You understand it. I understand it. But family life, everything else that pulls at a tour player to go out there every week and know that this is the most important thing to me. And that's what it, you have to do to be a Tiger Woods. The interesting thing about Tiger, Hal, I've known Hank, well, you and I both known Tiger since he was about 12 years old. I remember <laughs> when he first came to Portland, Oregon, in, and he played in his first U.S. Junior at my home club in Portland, Waverly Country Club. And I was the guest speaker at the dinner because I was a tour player and was talking to all the kids and had a chance to hang out with Tiger Woods. Well, I think it was five or six years later, he comes back to Portland after winning five USGA events in a row for the, for the U.S. Amateur at, at, at Pumpkin Ridge and watched him play there. As we all know, that was the hello world when he turned pro the next day and went on the PGA Tour. Tiger Woods has never settled for second best. He has always been focused on winning. In fact, I remember one story. We were at the LA Open, and Jay Haas and I were in eating breakfast at Riviera Country Club, and there was a – Tiger always had the first tee time of the day. He always wanted to get out and get done with the Pro-Am. So he was at 6.30, and Jay was at 6.40, and I was at 6.50. So we're in the – we're in the breakfast room eating breakfast and we're talking just BS and get ready to go out and practice. And here comes Tiger walking at us and Tiger had a glazed look in his eye. And we said to him, Hey Tiger, good morning. And he kept that look walking forward. And I looked at Jay and I said, what, what was that all about? I realized that Tiger, it didn't matter if it was a pro-am or a tournament round. He got so focused on what he wanted to do, which was to prepare to win that week, which I believe he did go on to win that week at Riviera. The commitment of a Jack Nicklaus, of a, of a Tiger Woods, of a Hal Sutton, of a Nick Faldo, of anybody that won major championships, Greg Norman, Paul Azinger. When you look at the commitment from a, from a player's aspect, almost sacrificing so many things in their life to be great. I, I really appreciate that because there are some players that simply can't do that. It's not either in their makeup or they simply don't want to do it. They don't want to give up whatever, whatever it is, the comforts that they really want to have in their life. So for me, I, I really respect that. I respect when somebody focuses and gives up something to achieve something and and i i i respect that peter do you, do you go ahead do you think that the money you know how and i have talked how's talked a lot about how you know with the money being so so high like 20th place out there now is a is a decent paycheck um do you think that that's made it more difficult for these guys to let's just say stay focused on winning or do you think it's the other outside distractions from 
sponsors from social media from ever from what the world our current world is is presenting do you think which which side of it which side is it is it is it the distractions is it the money is it a combination of both i think it is a combination of all things first of all the worst aspect on the pga tour now are the agents because the agents will take a player like hal sutton who clearly has the ability to win major championships and he's going to make sure that hal does nothing except focus on his golf with the with the end goal being to win major championships or to win that week on the PGA Tour. I think what's being lost today is the fact that the game of golf is shared by everybody in this country and everybody around the world. When Hal and I were playing uh, our generation, we used to do exhibitions and we used to do Monday events and we used to do Monday, Tuesday events. I used to have some events that, that, that I started and ran to where we would go to communities that didn't see the PGA Tour, but they still love golf, whether it's Cincinnati or Portland, Oregon, or, or Sacramento, Fresno, it, it, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. It didn't matter because people loved golf and they had a chance to see players like Hal Sutton and Jordan Spieth and, and so many of the players like that. So I see that as a big miss today because I believe the agents convinced the player that it's all about winning major championships. Well, I know in talking to the late great Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas as well, it's all about sharing the love of the game of golf. You don't just set your schedule and go to each tournament in the cities that you know. It's also okay to spread your wings and go to the cities where they don't see golf. And, and that's the one thing that I see missing right now in the current game. We don't see many players branch out and play extra events in cities where we don't, they don't see PGA Tour golf. Well, I think uh, there's always been, uh, I, I say this all the time, it requires selfishness to be great. And you got to surround yourself with people that allow you to be selfish, actually promote you being selfish. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, take Jack Nicholas. Uh, I'm sure he was selfish in that he did what he had to do for his career. And his wife, Barbara, one of the great ladies of the PGA Tour, always backed him on that. When the kids said, where's dad? She said, in a positive way, he's out doing this so that you can go to school where you go to school, you can drive the car you drive. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's tough. I mean, I was one of the things I was going to ask you about is balancing family life versus uh, and traveling with a family and playing the PGA Tour. Why don't you tell people what that's like? Well, you mentioned Jack and Barbara Nicholas. I think they're the first family of golf because yep. of the way Jack Nicholas, the greatest player, in the game, you can you can go back and forth with Tiger and Jack, but Tiger's the greatest player of this era. Jack was the greatest player of the last era. But what Jack and Barbara did was they balanced, they worked together to not only see Jack win 18 major championships and dominate like nobody's ever dominated, but to raise five kids, five good, healthy, well-adjusted kids. So that that is that really sets the standard for how to balance. The other, the other great family I thought was Johnny Miller and his wife, Linda. 
they were always so great to young players like myself and my wife when we first came on tour that we had a chance to learn from them because when you started having kids and you have to make your schedule to where you'd be home for two, out for two, home for one, out for three, whatever it would be, and you would sit down with your wife and kids and you would look at the schedule. The most difficult part of playing the tour is that, the travel, being away from home, not being with your kids, and it's, it's, it's really the most difficult aspect. And I see these young players now that are starting to get, starting to get married and start having kids. And they're going to understand that. And I think these players should reach out to Johnny Miller and Jack Nicklaus and ask them how they do that. Because at players like Steve Stricker, Stricker's done a wonderful job with it. He and his wife, his wife Nikki, who caddies for him a majority of the time now, they have two daughters. They're both in college now, but really great girls, well-adjusted. They both play golf. But you could go right down the money list, Hal. As you, you well know, so many players have had children and did a great balancing job between their careers and their families. But that is, as you pointed out, the most difficult aspect of what we do. By far. So one more question here single biggest change in golf since you've been part of it what affected the game more than anything else i think equipment the the golf ball probably how i don't play like i used to i don't have the swing speed but i play a lot of golf and i i love to go out and play with my friends and the one thing that i noticed is the golf ball just doesn't curve like it used to now i was never a big curver of the ball i never really tried to make the ball move that much. I didn't have that type of swing. I grew up in Portland with my father as my teacher. And then I got out on tour and Jim Hardy became my coach. And as a result, you, you've always, they say, you gotta go with what got you there. But I do remember watching players like Trevino and Chichi Rodriguez and Corey Pavin, players that could curve the ball. I don't see that much anymore, whether I'm watching or doing a broadcast, I just don't see. I love to. I love it when they do those top tracer technology when they follow the golf ball in the air. You don't see the ball curve much because it's difficult to curve the ball. So I believe that the golf ball has probably had the biggest impact and overall technology. The one thing that I would recommend all golfers to do is to go get fit. You've got to use a launch monitor. You've got to use some sort of a a track man, a launch monitor to be able to make sure that that driver or that three wood or that set of irons is fit for you. You don't go into a shoe store and buy a good looking pair of shoes because you like the way they look. You've got to try them on first to see if they fit. And that's the same thing that happens in golf. So again, I think technology has had the biggest impact on the game of golf uh, on both sides. So would you say See, in my opinion, I agree with you, except I'll take it one step further than that. The driver, the metal wood, changed the game entirely because in the early days, the guys that drove it the best with a wooden club were the guys that won the majority of the money. There were guys that hit it all over the world before that came along. When the metal wood came along, guys that were poor drivers of the ball became really good drivers of the ball, and that set the stage for swinging at it harder. And 
then along comes the Pro V1 and uh, look out where we've ended up. So I agree with you for the most part on that. Chase, you yeah, want to throw I, in some questions? I remember. Let me just jump in. I remember yeah. how when you and I first started playing, we played with that little teeny driver head. <laughs> uh, it was it was so small, it looked like a plum on the edge of a uh, on the end of a shaft, and it was that thick piece of uh, persimmon wood. And I do believe I, I agree with you. I think that you had to be so focused on catching that ball square that you did have, and you were one of those players. You could hit that driver and that three wood and that five wood. You could hit that thing square on the face like a Nicholas did. Whereas some guys, as you know as well as I do, they played all day clacking it off the toe and clacking it off the heel, but they got it around because they were really good players and they could they could scramble their way. But you're right. When that head, when that driver head all of a sudden got much bigger, this is a coaster I have on my desk here. It got so big that you could hit it here, you could hit it there. And it was forgiving. So you're right. Yeah, it brought the swing speed up quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, Chase, that's, that's the thing that how I talk about a lot with the wooden drivers is, you know, they were obviously shorter and heavier, but the the gear effect on those things, you hit it off the toe with a wound golf ball, that thing was snap hooking off the planet, hit it off the <laughs> heel with a wound golf ball, that thing slicing off the planet. We're now... Yeah, heel and toe hits are still curving a little bit left or a little bit right, but the forgiveness on these things is just so much better. And that, I had I had two questions kind of about this. Um, you know, thoughts on technology, which you already already placed an emphasis on, and I agree with you. I think TrackMan has done more for fitting than you know radars have done more for fitting than you know just the optimization that's available now. Um, but I'm, I'm going to ask you kind of a double-ended kind of two questions in one. Um, Thoughts on Bryson? You saw it firsthand last week. Um, kind of what he's doing, and and then a little bit of you know I, I wrote down your thoughts on technology and golf, but but more so maybe from the teaching side, you know, because you're obviously working with Jim and and the Hardy guys for a while, and then um, you know you're very well connected to the PGA Tour as far as how they're using technology for their golf swings too. So thoughts on Bryson, and then kind of thoughts on overall technology and and where we're headed with the golf swing stuff. I've known Bryson DeChambeau since he was about 10 years old. Uh, I did an event way back in the, the, well, when he was 10 years old in Fresno, California. It was an event that, that my company had put together. It was an exhibition. And Bryson was a 10-year-old, 11-year-old phenom. So whenever I do a clinic down there for that tournament, he would come out and hit balls. So... Back when he was a kid, fast forward, now he's on the PGA Tour. We're, we're pretty good friends. We, we've stayed close. And I really respect what he's done. He thinks outside the box. And, and Hal knows as well as anybody on tour that to win on the PGA Tour, you have to make changes, positive changes to your game, whether it be with your body, either gaining strength, losing weight, changing shaft, changing golf balls, you really do have to think outside the box as to what's going to work for you, and maybe it doesn't work for the masses. So what Bryson did a couple years ago where he gained that 40 pounds, he gained that swing speed, he started, as you know, the way that he putts, that's his way. He used to putt side saddle. He putted all different ways until he figured this thing out. 
and he wanted to hit the ball farther. And the amazing thing is, is Bryson swings hard, but actually he hits it straighter than he used to. He used to peel the ball a little bit. Now he gets up there and swings all out and he hits it pretty darn straight. So I give him all the credit in the world. First of all, and second of all, he's a, he's a sweet guy. I like Bryson a great deal. I know he comes across in his interviews as maybe a little quirky, as a bit of a mad scientist, but I, I'll tell you this quick story. Sunday night after the Arnold Palmer Invitational, uh, the family asked me to go do the 18th green ceremony. It wasn't on TV, but they asked me to go out and do it. So I went out on the green with Amy Palmer, Amy Saunders, and her son, Sam, who's a PGA Tour player, and MasterCard representative and Bryson. And I was to inter interview him, uh, introduce him and interview him and ask him a couple of questions. I asked him a question about a couple of the shots he hit. He answered them, boom. He was right on it. When I started asking him about Arnold Palmer, he started to cry. And people were clapping as he was gathering himself. But it became very clear to me that he loved Arnold Palmer, loved what Arnold stood for. Uh, everything about Arnold, the way that he treated people. Arnold made you feel like a king. We always said Arnold was the king. But every time he was with you, he made you feel like the king. And that's what Bryson made the comment. He goes, I wanted people that I come into contact with to feel like I care about them, like Mr. Palmer did. So Bryson is, he's unique. He's one of a kind, but I respect him for what he's done with his game and the way that he's approached it. And I, th let me ask you this. Who's the one guy that you want to have your eyes on when they hit a shot? It used to be John Daly. Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas. Now it's Bryson DeChambeau. So he is an e-ticket. He is worth the price of admission. And that is, that, that's the most valuable thing that the PGA Tour has right now. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, it's a thrill ride. As I said, Bay Hill met Universal Studios last week. It was a thrill ride with Bryson every day, all day. How thoughts? Well, I think uh, I got asked the question the other day, my, Michael Breed, about Rory McIlroy, and I'll be curious what you – you know, I think uh, social media has changed the game entirely. Um, and I think uh, some players are looking at it and some players aren't looking at it. And I think uh, Bryson DeChambeau is a guy that's not paying much attention to the uh, – the social media. I don't think because he kind of tells the golf fathers, I don't care what y'all have thought forever. I'm going to do it my way. And his way's pretty darn good. What do you think about social media today, Peter? Well, I I'm not a big fan of social media, Hal. I think it's great for you and I to stay connected with family and friends, but it it's gone a lot further than that. People can hide behind whatever handle they are. One, two, three, golfer. And they can make comments that they would never tell you to your face. And I believe it's cruel. I believe what's happened to a lot of players. I remember, oh gosh, Jordan had just won. Jordan Spieth had just won his first tournament. And we were in Tampa. And he had got into a Twitter spat with somebody on social media criticizing his golf game. And he got on Twitter and he answered him. 
And whenever I go on Twitter and I make a comment, like about, like I say, Hal Sutton was the best driver that I'd ever played with. Say I say that. And somebody comes back and says, I agree. Or somebody writes back and says, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. I just don't respond. I don't react. And that's the one right. thing that I wish the PGA Tour would do a seminar on social media saying, don't react. Don't read the comments. If you want to read that somebody thinks you're great, okay, do that. But don't react. And if somebody rips you, don't react. But that's hard for some players. But you're right, Al. Bryson, I don't think – I know he's got a, a handle. I think he's got a Twitter thing. But he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He cares what you think or what I think as tour players because he's always asking me questions about this, that, or the other thing. And I give him my – uh, an opinion because he knows it's an informed opinion because I played the tour. You've played the tour. But for a guy off the street or somebody in his pro-am group that's a 10, he hasn't done it. He hasn't been inside the ropes. And that, that's not being cruel and that's not picking on somebody. But, but I just think that he wants to have as much information, uh, informed information as he possibly can going forward. So yeah, the social media, the feedback, it drives me crazy. I, I, people can be cruel on social media. I, I just don't like that. Well, I agree with you on that. And I think, you know, I try not to react to what anybody says either. But the truth of the matter is, I think it still affects people inside. And you can see different people react different ways, even if they didn't react to it. Internally, they're processing what someone else has said. And, you know, there's always been, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, Rory is a great player. I love what Rory does. And I get asked all the time, what do you think about him not playing as well? And I'm thinking, well, he's playing all right. What are you talking about? Well, but people view him, his comparison is Tiger. That's who everybody wants to compare him to. And to be honest with you, that's a tough role to follow. And, uh, you know, I think down deep, he wants to live up to his own expectations first, but I think there's still part of what everybody else is saying that's in him that he's reacting to. And my answer back to Michael on that breed was to say, look, you know, he needs to quit thinking about what the world wants. He needs to string one shot up against another good shot, up against another good shot, and let it keep building into his own expectations and what he wants to do, not what the world wants him to do. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's you're exactly right. He needs to be Bryson Shambo. He needs to say, okay, it doesn't matter what, what, what anybody says. I don't care what they say on TV, on the radio. Uh, on websites, on Twitter, on Instagram, I don't care. I'm going to do what I do. And actually, how you bring up Rory, I think now that Bryson has won the U.S. Open last fall and he's won the API and he's now become the story in golf, I think that's going to help Rory. I think that's going to take pressure off Rory. Rory's a wonderful young man. There's so many great kids on tour, Hal, as you know. Uh, Ricky Fowler's going through a tough time. He's trying to find his game again. Same with Spieth, Rory McIlroy. They're all wonderful young men. And I think that Bryson taking over the mantle right now of the most interesting man in golf, I think will help Rory 
and Jordan and Ricky Fowler because the spotlight is off them, and now it's on Bryson. I think Bryson can handle it. Bryson's a lot like Jack, a lot like Tiger, a lot like Faldo, to where when the, when the, the light is shining bright on him, I think he can deal with it. Not to say that Rory and these other guys can't, but it's difficult, as you know. Sometimes you've just got to step out of the spotlight, catch your breath, and then get back into the spotlight. So I think we could see a pretty good run from Rory right now, now that, now that Bryson's the guy. That's an interesting thought. Uh, how long were you on the policy board? Oh, gosh, I was on, uh, I think I had three stints on the policy board. I think if each of them was two years at a time, maybe three years. I was on the policy board there and then on the Champions Tour, which, which I love doing. I know you did, too, to, just to be a part of making the, the decisions about the direction of the tour uh, and being involved in, in making sure the game that we love stays the game that we love. I think maybe six, eight, nine years, something like that, total. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been interesting to watch uh, the tour continue being uh, led by people that grow the game, that uh, continue to <clears throat> bring incredible golf to TV, to the viewers, you know, and commentators like yourself, you know, you're very interesting to listen to. And, um, uh, you give insight into the game and what people are thinking and <clears throat> because you've been there. So I, I appreciate that. I hope uh, the world does too, Peter. It's interesting how, when you start thinking about being on the policy board, you're right. The PGA tour, I think is the finest professional sports organization in the world because it's led by people that put the game first, first and foremost, it's not about, of course it's about money. The game of golf is a business. But Jackie, your, your pal, Jackie Burke, he said, it's hard to make a game into a business. It's hard to take the game of golf that we so passionately love and turn it into commerce. And we have to remember that it's all about the golf ball, the ball in flight, trying to put the club on the ball and make it react the way we want it to. And I think that from Dean Beeman to Tim Fincham now to Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour is so lucky to have so many great people managing our game and monitoring how we grow. I can't say the same for these other professional sports because sometimes I have to scratch my head with the decisions they're making. It isn't always about the game. It's, it could be about these outside political issues which have nothing to do with the game. So. I very much appreciate our leaders on the PGA Tour, the USGA, the PGA of America, and the LPGA. I just think that people in the game of golf, again, it doesn't matter how you and I can go out and play with two, two players that are 35, 40 handicappers. It doesn't matter. If you love the game, you love the game. And you can share experiences about family, about business, about politics, about finance. And it's really fun to get those different perspectives. And it all starts and ends from the first tee all the way to the 18th green. Well, <clears throat> the game has been good to both of us. There's no doubt about it. We've played with presidents. We've played with entertainers. Uh, 
the tour has done so many good things for us. I mean, you know, one of the things that I want to go over, and, and I think you'll attest to all of this, you know, the retirement player retirement plan done by the tour is incredible compared to everybody else's. We're actually, the tour is a community that travels. They have their school, basically. They have daycare set up for the kids every week that people don't really realize. Uh, the tour has thought of everything for a family to be able to function on the road. And it takes 1,500 to 2,000 volunteers a week to make this work. And this is a traveling 45 weeks a year or whatever it is to all these different communities. And what an effort, an all out effort by everybody to do it. And you and I were two of the people that got to enjoy that for a long time. Yeah, the, the, as we said, when, you, when you're traveling, Sometimes you're by yourself, sometimes you bring your family along and you want to be able to have your wife and your kids be comfortable out there. So when they have the daycare every week and you can take your children, drop them off and go play and then go back and get your kids, it allows you to go out there on the road and be with your family. But as you know, volunteers make this tour go. Whenever there's 1,500 to 2,000 volunteers that are giving of their time to, to be able to allow us to do what we do. I remember one year at the John Deere Classic in uh, Moline, Illinois, we had a rain delay and we had to go back out on Monday. And the tournament director, Claire Peterson, had asked all of us, put a note in our locker saying, when you have a chance on each hole or whenever you see a marshal, please thank them. We've only got a third of the marshals with us because everybody had to go back to work. But those people that are there with us today are taking a, a day of vacation to be able to stand out there with the quiet police sign when Hal and Peter are driving or putting. And that's quite a commitment and dedication to, to their community and to the tournament. So I remember that day I was playing with uh, Skip Kendall and Jerry Kelly. And we went up on every tee, every green. Every time we ran into a marshal, we just said, thank you for being here. It's a very small gesture, just saying thanks. But if you get as many tour, if you get 60 guys thanking the marshals, it, that means something. And the marshals, you know, we're going to want to come back because if Hal Sutton goes up and says, hey, thanks a lot for coming. And that person goes, hey, Hal, how you doing? Nice night. Congrats on the PGA Championship that guy feels connected to you. And that was always one of the messages that I learned from Arnold. Always, Arnold always wanted to connect with the people. Whenever I was with him, either doing an exhibition or a tournament round, we would always, he'd always say, hey, come on, let's go over here and see these people seated. And we'd walk over to these people that have, have they've camped there all day long. And he'd go over there and he'd say, hey, how are y'all doing? Hey, great, thanks for coming out shake their hands, and then we'd walk away. Two-minute interaction, maybe maybe three or four, maybe sign something and move on. And that meant so much to those fans as a way of a thank you for coming out and being a part of what we do from week to week. So you're right, the marshals and the volunteers, we couldn't do these tournaments without them. All right, I got one more question, most important one of all. We're looking at what we did in the rearview mirror. If you could go back and change, what would Peter Jacobson change about the way you did it? 
Oh my gosh, Al, that is that is a, a, a huge question. Well, I would love to have won more. Uh, I, I, I won seven events. I, I didn't win a major. I did win some majors on the Champions Tour. But I, 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 I don't know how. That's a great question. I'm totally stumped. Winning, as you know, is a, is a function of, of hard work and focus. And I always felt like I did that. I always, I felt like I probably overachieved. I'm not sure I'm that, I'm that good of a player, but uh, I think, I think we all end up with just what we're supposed to have. And I was so, I was so fortunate to, to get to know people like yourself and Arnold and Jack and Gary Clare. How you think about the people we played with? We had one foot in that our generation, and another foot in this generation. Having the chance to play with Tiger and 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 Rory and DeChambeau and Jack and Arnold and Gary and Trevino. In fact, I even played with Tommy Bolt uh, back in the day. I met Ben Hogan. I don't know what I would have done, what I would do differently. I really don't. You stumped me. I'm gonna. Have- <laughs> I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit. But quite honestly, I, I don't know if I would change anything. I, I, I don't know if I could have won any more tournaments. I wish I'd made more Ryder Cups. You and I were on one Ryder Cup together. I wish I'd made more, because I find that my Ryder Cup relationships and the competition that we had was, was the most thrilling and the mo- and, and and meant the most to me having a chance to represent your country. So, hey, I'm stumped. That's, hey, that's you, the best answer I can give you. Well, you gave me a good lesson there, Peter, and you probably gave all the listeners a good lesson too. I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and you're forward thinking. So I'm going to change this. I'm going to be thinking about forward thinking from now on. Good for you. That's good. That's, <laughs> that's the most important thing for all of us to do. We can't change what happened there. Just appreciate it, learn from it, and do better. There you go. Peter, thanks for being the first guy on our uh, our podcast. You've been fantastic, and we really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest, and uh, I look forward to seeing many, many more. Thanks, Peter. Awesome, Peter. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, Mr. Peter Jacobson at his finest. He uh, He's quite a guy. He's uh, a great friend. And I'm sure he said some pretty insightful things that all y'all will uh, enjoy have enjoyed listening to. Uh, we're going to get back to the Players' Championship and talk about that a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, you know, going back to Peter, he's such a great storyteller. Yeah. You know, he's got so many good stories. And it was interesting that you stumped him with the – because one of the – you know, we had talked about a little bit leading up to it. I'd, I'd written down on my notes a question I wanted to ask him was the same one you asked him at the end, if you could go back – would you change anything? And I thought that was pretty powerful because I know for me personally, like there's a ton of things I would have tried. I mean, immediately I'm like, I would have done this, 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 or this different. And he, he, he wasn't, didn't really have an answer. There's no real pain that he's trying to go back and and fix. Well, you know, he did have an answer and this tells you why I'm good friends with Peter. Uh, He's a forward thinker. And he said, I don't really, he said, I felt like I was an overachiever, mm-hmm. if you remember that. Yep. And I, I very seldom will you hear a really great player go back and say, I was an overachiever. Right. And, uh, you know, 
that tells you that, peace, that Peter's really at peace mm-hmm. with himself. And I learned something actually in that last episode where, you know, I tend to live in the rearview mirror thinking about what I needed to do different, yep. you know. And, you know, Peter's more of a forward thinker. And there's something to be learned from the rearview mirror, but there's also something to, about living in the future too. Sure. One of the things he also said that we talked about afterwards was when he was talking about Bryson taking some of the spotlight off of some of the other players. What, do you, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a, uh, I think that's true. Uh, but also, I think Rory will never stop trying to live up to his expectations, yeah. no matter where the spotlight is at. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe the world is looking over here, but he's still thinking about what he's yeah. trying to do. No, completely. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, Bryson has pushed the limits. You know, I said on Michael Breed show the other day that, that, uh, in all honesty, Bryson looks at the golf fathers and says, I don't care what y'all think. I'm going to do it my way. And, you know, I, I admire that because few can. You know, we want to do the best we can do within the limits of the game of golf, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bryson is just pushing the boundaries out of the way and saying, move over, I'm coming through. Yeah, he's almost taken you, – you've mentioned it a bunch. Like, you guys would look under every rock to find an, find an ounce or find an inch of, of improvement. And he's kind of taken that and, and you know – put it on steroids and gone crazy like he's looking for every little ounce of advantage and you know whether it's hitting it a mile or at one point he was trying side saddle putting and just doing everything he could well i'll rephrase what you just said we had limits we were looking under every rock but we weren't going to go certain places yeah bryson took all the limits away and said i'll go anywhere Mm -hmm. you know i'll never forget when you know the first time i split hand gripped a putter and i actually won a tournament with a split hand grip but you know, I thought, what is everybody going to think of me for doing this? Yeah. Bryson right. doesn't care sure. what anybody thinks about him. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, in the 3D world when we were going around traveling with him some, you know, you put 18 sensors on him. We took pictures of him at PJ Tour events, and there were video cameras everywhere watching him, and he really didn't care. You know, he was he had a full a full 3D suit on there. Uh, the You know, the Wednesday afternoon before, before he tees off the next morning at Colonial, asking me all the you know all the questions he could ask about the data and what it said and i'm like man if if this would have been me if i would have gotten all this data and and had all this information I, my mind would have been completely blown the next day and you know talking to his former coach mike shy at the time he was like no this is this is how he how he ticks he wants to know everything and then he can somehow throw some of it away that he doesn't need and can co- go compete compete with that and to me that's that's what's so fascinating about him too many too many other guys would have just be my they'd be mind blown i couldn't have done it yeah i couldn't e- I, I mean couldn't i couldn't either it. and he he says it makes it makes the game simpler for him it's just it's just interesting everybody's so different you know we've got engineers and and artists that we talk about all the time and he's 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 way more on the engineer rocket scientist side of things than most people are and comfortable to be there yeah yeah, that's exactly right. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about, about Players' Championship Week. What do you feel, obviously, near and dear, the golf course is near and dear to your heart. You know, 16, 17, 18, we, we, we discussed a little bit. They get a lot of play. But what are some of the other holes out there that, you know, we might not see as much in, in some of the more underrated holes? Well, five, seven, eight is a great par three. 14, second hardest hole on the golf course. Um, there's a lot of, you know, to me – um, TPC sets up where there's you got to make hay in certain places, and you know I used to tell my caddy Freddie I'd say Freddie okay remind me that par is golden here, 
You know, I was never really trying to attack the hole. I was trying to do what Pete Dye designed the golf course to be. I was trying to put it in this quadrant so I could go to this quadrant. Yeah. And, you know, whenever people talk about angles don't make a difference, you know, I'm thinking to myself every time you haven't played many Pete Dye golf courses because, I mean, he definitely designs all his golf courses to be seen from different quarters yeah. and different shots to be seen from different quarters. So, you know, I was always wanting Freddie to remind me that, you know, don't try to do too much on yeah. these holes. Every time I try to do too much, you, you got caught speeding at sure. TPC. One of the things we, we were looking back at the, at the uh, scorecards of when you won in uh, 83, yeah. right? When you won in 83, 2000, and then this year. And the interesting part was that the, the course length hasn't changed a whole lot. No, it hasn't. I think uh, we determined it was 68.50 or somewhere right in there mm-hmm. in uh, 83. 7,050 yards whenever I won in 2000. And like 71.30 or something mm-hmm. this year. So right. not significant changes distance-wise. Uh, certainly the golf ball is going a lot further and people are hitting it a lot further. So mm-hmm. they're probably hitting a lot shorter irons into the greens. Or, or at least um – you know, shorter clubs, you know, smaller clubs off the tee to get to the same spots that, right. that it was designed to get to. Right. Like three wood off one or, or, or driving iron off one at times just to kind of get it down there. And, you know, because you even said it's not really a golf course that you can just go, you know, Bryson's not going to be able to just go bombing on every hole. Yeah, well, we were talking about that. There's really no hole. They said, you know, today that they were making it out of bounds left of the water on 18, like he might try to go that direction. It'd be a thousand yard walk to get around yeah. if he did that. And I'm not sure where there is for him to hit it over there. Yeah. And, and, and then once you get it over there, the green sets up like this and you're going to hit it like this. It's just not the way it was designed, it's just not the way it was yeah. designed to be played. Uh, I think uh, there's no real place that Bryson will have his advantage because of his length on yeah. that golf course. And I think, you know, you could see one of the short hitters actually win this right. week. And that was going to be my next question was, you know, do you feel like, because, again, you weren't you weren't the longest, but you weren't the shortest either. Does it set up for just kind of that Kevin Kisner type that's just going to go rip it down the – a Colin Morikawa that's not short but super accurate and just kind of hits it from point A to point B and very precise iron player? I would say that's exactly who's going to win this yeah. week. right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, short game is great at TPC. You're going to get in some spots that you're going to have to have some short game to get it out of. But uh, I'd say your best iron players are the guys that are going to be, you know, you got to keep it in play, but, you know, you don't have to hit driver there all the time to do it. Sure. So... uh, well, so last last episode we we did a Q and A and we talked about you know throwing in a couple of you guys' questions each each week. So we're going to go ahead and start that this week. We got we got two questions and one of them kind of tie. Well, they both kind of tie into this week at, at the players. Uh, the first question is how do you play in the wind and in Orlando and 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 you know I guess not not Orlando where Jacksonville. is Jacksonville yeah. in North it's even yeah. more yeah it's even windier I, I completely spaced on Jacksonville. Um, so it can get it can get windy there. How did you? I grew up in Oklahoma. I grew up in the wind too, so I I definitely felt it. But how did you? Because you guys didn't deal deal with it as much in most of the events. You know, you got some got some wind over in Europe, obviously, in some of the places here in the states. But how did you? What did you try and do in the wind? Well, I always tried to flight the ball. I mean, you know, early on in my career, I tended to hit it lower. So I'd wake up and see the wind blowing, and 
I'd be like, all right, and, you know, and, and here's something to be, everybody out there needs to think about. When the wind is blowing, most everybody else wants to go back to bed. Yeah. That's just the truth because they don't have as much control when the wind is blowing. And here's the way I kind of felt like I kept a little bit of control in the wind is I never tried to hit it hard. I always would overclub or swing at it easy and keep the ball down that way. Right. You know, you need to put your ego aside because, you know, it's easier to flight something if you're hitting it smooth rather than, you know, if you're trying to hit it really hard, sometimes you release a little bit early, add loft, the ball shoots up into the air, and we all know what's happening then. Yeah, I was always told from an early age, you just got to hit it solid. You got to make sure you're making solid contact. Any miss hits in the wind, obviously. So, you know, get get um, get exaggerated. So making sure saw contact, um, playing the ball back a little bit and, and taking more club and going at it 75, 80%. It's, it's really easy to hit. Say your six iron, you know, distance is 175. It's really easy to hit chippy six irons 150 and the wind's not going to mess with it hardly at all versus trying to rip the eight iron 150 and it gets up in the air and spins too much and goes all over the place. Always had a lot more success when I followed that rule. Yeah. Right, and it's amazing how many times we've mentioned that on this podcast to be able to go a little bit slower and not swing so so hard all the time. Well, I think it's it's great to have that in your bag, in your toolbox to be able to do. Right. And I think it's a forgotten uh, art in today's world. Most of the kids are trying to hit everything as hard as they can hit it. And it kind of has you know, gravitated into all of our games. And I think you know the art of this game is scoring whether you have to do it with one club or another club yeah. so if you never forget that we're trying to shoot as low a score as we can shoot then maybe you can put this back into your toolbox and become a better player with it yeah you don't have to hit it 350 to shoot under par no you, don't. you can still hit it 275 and shoot under par you you're talking about me now no not necessarily <laughs> hey hey we all play from the right tees everybody we can all shoot under par um second question this one's this one's a, a very interesting question. Um, do you need to have a big ego to win on the biggest stage? Uh, how many times can I say yes, 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 yes? I think you to be a great player and win on the biggest stage, you got to have seen yourself there many times, and you got to be comfortable when you get there. And now, I'm not saying that uh, you need an ego that is not intact, uh, that gets out of hand. But I am saying you got to have an inner belief that says, hey, I can do this. And I'm comfortable doing this. I'm not uncomfortable. I'm not in uncharted waters that I never dreamed about being in. And I can guarantee you whoever wins this tournament this week yeah. uh, will, will have an ego. Yeah, coming down the stretch, if they've got a one-shot leader or, or whatever on 17 or 18, they might be a little nervous or a little little anxious. No, they will be. Yeah, <laughs> but they're, they're not, there's a difference between that and scared. Right. You know, they're, they're not fearful of the situation. They're that's just right. on edge. You yeah. know, they're just... They're, everybody gets nervous, and, and I think that's important that we talk about. Right. You know, everybody. I, I never won a tournament that I was playing, and I wasn't a little nervous. But I didn't feel out of control because I was nervous. Yeah. I felt like I'm, oh, this is where I dream about being. This is where I want to be. Let's take it in and we can handle this. Yeah, you weren't overwhelmed. I wasn't overwhelmed. Yep. 
So yeah, I would I would definitely definitely agree with that. To win on the biggest stage, you you definitely have to have a. I love the the term inner belief because yeah. that's exactly what you have to have. Yeah, I mean you don't have to you know have a just sign across your chest or anything. Right. You know right. there there are people with egos that they might as well have a sign across their chest. Mm-hmm. But I mean you can tell with the way a man wa- or woman where they walk mm-hmm. that they believe in themselves yep. and. Uh, They'll have that. The winner this week will have that. That's what it takes to win at the highest level, for sure. Right. Awesome, Hal. Good stuff. Thanks again for joining in, guys. Um, again, keep your questions coming. Keep following us. Check us out on, on all of our uh, social media pages, HalSuttonGolf.com. Um, again, let us know if you guys have any other any other requests or any other um, any other thoughts for podcast ideas. We've got a, got a fun uh, fun guest next week that we'll announce here in a couple days and uh, yeah keep tuning in keep liking keep subscribing and again we'll keep uh keep trying to produce good content for you yeah we're going to bring some really good guests to you so uh stay tuned Today. Yes!